So our gospel reading for today is challenging because it is one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. It is a trope that is so thoroughly and completely saturated in Western culture that people who have never read a sentence of scripture nonetheless know what this story is about. It's a person in an emergency situation, and of course, the clergy pass by in order to do some important religious stuff, and they, they're careful to cross the road first, you know, so as to alleviate any pangs of conscience that might spring up. Um, and then the stranger comes by and expends his own resources lavishly to help the man recuperate. This story serves in the popular secular imagination both as a condemnation of hypocritical, self-serving religious leadership and as a positive image that or symbol that supports altruistic behavior. Any passerby who offers aid in an emergency situation is called what? A good Samaritan, right? In many states, Texas included, I checked this out, just in case you want to help somebody on the side of the road. They have Good Samaritan laws that protect would-be do-gooders from legal suits by folks who don't appreciate being rescued. But the trope of the Good Samaritan, shorn from its literary context in the Gospel of Luke and made into a bland and blasé call to help people in need, in almost every way fails to grasp the significance of this story as Luke tells it in Scripture. Every day that goes by, I'm increasingly convinced that there is an invisible but devastating famine in America. We don't see this famine because we are immersed in an endless sea of cheap consumer goods and craft beer and farm and table restaurants and noise and entertainment. We have this surfeit of Netflix and Amazon original programming, the golden age of such programming people. But meanwhile, our hearts are starving for the word of God. This church in America does not read the scripture. And when we read it, we don't understand it, and so we do not profit from it. We are awash in a sea of false teachers on the internet that cast doubt upon the reliability of the scriptures or encourage us to read them superficially and shallowly and without any real discernment. But the church in all ages has known with certainty a central truth that we modern American Christians have forgotten. In which this morning I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to recall and bring to our conscious awareness as we are here meditating on the scriptures together. And that is this. The scriptures are sacramental. They are a chief means by which Jesus is made present to us by the Holy Spirit. Both in our reading of them and in our meditation on them. Both individually in our private devotions, but also here corporately as we meditate on these scriptures together as his church. The scriptures are God's instrument to feed our souls. When we study them and when we meditate upon them, the Holy Spirit nourishes us with the spiritual food of Christ, who is everywhere in this text. St. Augustine once said to his people in a sermon, I nourish you with what I myself am nourished upon. Namely, the Holy Scriptures. Unless we are nourished by study of and meditation on these Scriptures, we cannot know who we are or what we are for, and we will live emaciated and shriveled lives. There is no poverty and there is no hunger greater than not knowing our story, even if we don't feel it. My friends, this morning, let us wake up to what God is doing in the midst of us through his word. Let us become curious as to what God wants to do in us through this over-familiar story. 
Let's let it become strange for, my, for us again as we meditate on it together. Now, there's a specific reason why Luke retells this parable by Jesus, and there is a specific reason why it appears where it does in Luke's gospel. And so we need to know what Luke is trying to tell us when he repeats this story about Jesus. We need to know why he put it, where he put it. We need to read it, I've said this before, I'll say it again, we need to read this story intensively, paying attention to all the details that Luke puts into this story. And we need to read it extensively, paying attention to where the story falls in the narrative. So first, let's look at the text intensively. The framing of this story is critical. The one who questions Jesus is a teacher of the law. That's how this person is described. He's one of the Pharisees. He's a shepherd of Israel. And he asks Jesus a question, the answer to which he already knows. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows that this guy knows the answer already. So he makes him answer his own question, which is sort of humiliating, right? Well, teacher of the law, what's written in the law? Why don't you summarize it for me, teacher of the law? And the man answers well. He answers with a quotation from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then with a second text from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. You've got it. Now go do that. That's how you'll be saved. The man doesn't like this answer, as you might imagine. He doesn't like the answer because it condemns him. He's been condemned with his own words because he hasn't done what he is teaching. And I think in all fairness, every single one of us in this room ought to see ourselves in this expert in the law. Amen? This poor guy is a master in virtue signaling and Jesus has just gone boop to his little bubble. You know? If he lived today, we would be blinded by the purity and fervor of his tweets. We would be we would be blown away by the urgency and the earnestness of his IG posts. But listen, he's talking to Jesus. Jesus doesn't care about any of that. He sees right through it. And Jesus loves this man enough to call his bluff. We might imagine Jesus' updated answer like this. Sure, that's great. You're absolutely righteous, sir, in your very online opinions. Now let's see you get some skin in the game, son. So the teacher of the law asks this clarifying question in order to absolve himself, to justify himself. Okay then, who is my neighbor? I'm sure this guy has definitely loved some of his neighbors, right? So he's like, okay, which one of the ones that I've loved are you talking about, Jesus? And so to reply to this, Jesus tells a story in which the men who are in the teacher of the law's social cast feature prominently and not at all flatteringly. They are not the heroes of the story they are this story's negative foils, right? You don't want to be like those people. The priest and the Levite, who are in essence Israel's collective conscience, the guarders and the interpreters of the law, abandon this neighbor. Rather than help the man, they pass by on the other side of the road. And the distance with which they pass by, the man reinforces the distance of their hearts from the spirit of the law. You see, they grasp the letter and they have missed the spirit of the law entirely. 
What is the law for? What is it trying to direct us towards? How is it trying to shape us and form us? They've missed all of that. They have the right opinions, but their hearts are far from the opinions that they profess. They are giving this man a wide berth so that they, they do not have to feel the burning of their consciences as they neglect the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus calls them, in order to attend to its lesser points. The lesser points don't cost them as much, and it gets them noticed more. So, of course, they're giving their energy and their attention to those points and missing the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, walking humbly with God, as the prophet Micah tells us. This is, in the calculus that this parable sets up, a spiritual and moral disaster. The shepherds of Israel are abandoning abandoning a lost and ruined sheep of Israel. But who does care for the neighbor? The Samaritans. The Samaritans were, of course, those who worshipped on Mount Gerizim rather than at the temple in Jerusalem. And they are regarded by the Jews as the people of the land that were left when the Assyrians and the Babylonians took the best and the brightest away from Israel into exile. And these are the same ones that Ezra and Nehemiah reject when they return to Israel to rebuild the walls of the city and to rebuild the temple and restore temple worship. As the Jews see it, they have intermarried together with the nations surrounding them. And so therefore, they have been polluted by Gentile customs and beliefs. They've lost the thread of their story. And so, faithful Jews avoided Samaritans, regarding them as Gentile sinners. And the Samaritans, frankly, returned the favor. So there is a fully intended shock value in the way that Jesus is telling this story. He means for the punchline to be completely unexpected. Faithful Jews abandon their own, but the outsider, the Samaritan, rescues the man and lavishes his own resources upon his recuperation. When he finishes the parable, he says, Now which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? To which the teacher of the law says, Well, I guess the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the word the Samaritan because it's so distasteful to him. So it must have been even more grievous for Jesus to look him in the eye and say, go and do likewise. That is, be like the one you hate and want nothing to do with. Jesus is shaming this man, in other words, with the righteous behavior of a putative enemy of the people. Now, the framing of this story with a teacher of the law challenging Jesus and Jesus responding by deprecating the leadership of Israel and highlighting the nobility of the outsider's actions led the early church reflecting on this story to read it very differently than the way that we tend to in the American church. We always put ourselves in the center of the story, right? Be like the Samaritan. Go and do likewise, right? Be like the Samaritan. But the historical church teaches us to see in the Samaritan Not the disciple of Jesus, but Jesus himself. Now I want to make clear that in no way can we detach the disciple or the church from Christ. As if Jesus is called to sacrificial pouring out of his life and we are not. The prosperity gospel is a uniquely American perversion of the gospel, which we have exported to the entire world. In which Christ suffers so that we do not have to. No, the disciple, Jesus says, is not above the master. So whatever the master does, the disciple will do also. We are co-heirs with Christ, St. Paul says, if also we have suffered together with him. Amen? But the ordering of these things 
is utterly critical. We get to be participants in the work of redemption that Christ is doing, but we are not ourselves the saviors. Only Jesus is the savior. If we want to understand the drama of redemption, we have to know the part we are meant to play in this drama. Now, the early church grasped this point and it impacted the way they interpreted the story. The early church understood that the Christian does have a role to play in this story, but it is not the role of the Samaritan. We are not centered in this story. Jesus is the center of the story. Jesus is the Samaritan. The fathers of the church all claimed that the name Samaritan did not just name a people group. They also claimed that that it was a word with a meaning in and of itself. It meant guardian. And so they applied this title to Jesus, the Samaritan. The guardian. If we're going to put ourselves into this story as a character, the fathers say, we, sh- it, we should play the part of the man left for dead on the side of the road. St. Augustine said it this way. Robbers, that is, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the great enemies of humanity, left you half dead on the road, but you have been found lying there by the passing and kindly Samaritan. This Samaritan... Jesus has poured out wine and oil on us. This Samaritan has lifted us onto his mule and he has carried us to the inn. But St. Augustine goes on to say that as we are healed and as we are brought into the inn, we are given a second part to play in this story. We are given the dignity of a second part to play. We trade our bloody rags and our bruises and our wounds for the humble garments of the innkeeper. But as innkeepers, we are still not the Samaritan, the guardian. We are not the healers. We do not provide the resources for the healing. Instead, we are co-laborers together with Christ, with Christ participating in the bringing of the kingdom and the bringing of the healing that Christ is bringing to a broken world. The church for Augustine is the inn where the man has been brought. You have believed that Christ became the church and healed us in his incarnation, Augustine says. You have been brought into the church. You are being cured in the inn. And then critically, Augustine adds this. The church is where I am speaking and why I am speaking. The great St. Augustine, the formidable bishop, the monk, One of the greatest intellects and rhetoricians in the whole history of the church is not the Samaritan. He is joining his church, the royal priesthood of all believers, in this holy work of being the innkeeper, of using resources not his own, resources that belong to Jesus to heal the world. Here's what he says. This is what I too, what all of us are doing We are performing the duties of the innkeeper. The innkeeper is told by the Samaritan, if you spend any more, I will pay you when when I return. It is not our resources we are spending when we care for people, Augustine says. It is the Lord's. However much we spend, brothers and sisters, it is the Lord's money. That's what St. Augustine tells us. We can't save the world with our own resources. I hope you know that this morning, my friends. We cannot save the world with greater technology. We can't do it. The problems go too deep. 
Only Christ owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We can do hard things, church. But we can only do hard things if Jesus is the foundation, the means, and the end of what we are doing. This is not about us. This is about the kingdom of God coming among us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit in the resources of what Jesus has won for us in his person and work. Amen? If he calls us to hard things, that is because he is the Samaritan. He is the guardian that makes it possible for us to do them. We have this native tendency as modern Americans to center ourselves in every story. And that is because, I'm just going to say it, we are narcissists. <laughs> when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, we imagine that we are the Samaritans, right? We're rescuing those who have been harmed by the world and restoring them to wholeness. And it, but it's part of the hubris and the idolatry of the modern age that we imagine that we're capable of being the primary agents of salvation. The historic church which received and was shaped by this parable, in its humility, both about itself and what it was capable of, thought otherwise. And listen, y'all, if you know anything about the history of the church, you know that the church has done hard things. You know the church is not perfect. It's full of sinners, just as the rest of the world is. But you know that the church also invented hospitals, schools, orphanages. You know that the church created the intellectual foundations for the affirmation of the universal dignity of all persons, has struggled for economic justice for the poor, and has reframed governance and leadership as service. That's hard stuff. The church has done and is doing hard things, fam. But when it has been animated to follow Jesus into this kind of costly discipleship, it is precisely because it has not seen itself as the Samaritan, but as the brutalized man who has been saved by the Samaritan and the innkeeper gratefully receiving resources from the Samaritan and partnering with Jesus in the healing of the world. Amen? We are not the Samaritan. We are innkeepers in the inn of the church, participating in the building of the kingdom, not in our own resources, but with Jesus's. And if we're going to participate in the drama of the redemption of the world, then paradoxically, we have to give up our pretension that we are the saviors. How do we do that? We got to slow down in order to be transformed by the one who is the salvation of the world. That's another paradox of the Christian faith. In order to go and do likewise, we have to stop. We have to slow down to hear from the one who is the Samaritan. About 40 years ago, two Princeton sociologists, John Darley and Daniel Batson, created a study to test the truth of the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this study, the pool was Princeton Seminary students. The study sought to test two things. First, they wanted to see whether thinking religious thoughts had any effect upon the likelihood of a theological student helping a stranger on the street. Secondly, they wanted to test the effects of time pressure on the likelihood of a student helping a stranger on the street. Do you get it? The first thing they wanted to test was thinking better thoughts. Does that help you to like care for other people? Or, or B, does time pressure have a greater effect? So Darley and Batson wrote, one can imagine the priest and Levite prominent religious figures hurrying along with a little black book full of meetings and appointments, glancing furtively at their sundials. 
So as they crafted their study, they had some of their subjects rush and others take their time. The the participants, who were all Princeton Theological Seminary students, were all told that they were to give a three to five minute talk about being a minister of the gospel. For half the students, they were asked to talk in general about what it means to be a minister and what kind of jobs involve ministry to some degree. But the other half were given the story of the Good Samaritan and told to incorporate it somehow into their talk. Then some students were told to head over in a leisurely way, and others were told, oh, you're late. They were expecting you a few minutes ago. You better get going. And along the way, they staged an emergency, which the paper refers to as the incident. I love it. (laughs) The incident. An actor is sitting slumped in a doorway, head down, eyes closed, not moving, and would cough as as the students walked by. And what these sociologists found was really, really interesting. The content of the talk the students gave made absolutely no difference as to whether the students stopped to give aid. Darley and Batson said that on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried on his way. That hurts so much. (laughs) But the student's perception of how much time he or she did have made a big difference. Students who were hurried were much less likely to be helpful toward the person in need. This paper makes this critical point then, which I think all of us right now need to internalize. If we're going to participate in the healing of the world by the Samaritan, the most important thing we can do is to slow down. This modern life, especially in a high-octane place, in an expensive place like Austin, is characterized by overwork and distraction and anxiety. And therefore, there is no more urgent task for we who desire to be innkeepers, as Dallas Willard once put it, than to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. On this point, the necessity of slowing down and attending to Jesus, the Samaritan, the guardian, where Luke places this story, is all important. Remember I said we need to read this story intensively in its details? We've done that. But then extensively, where does it fall in Luke's telling of the story of the gospel as a whole? This story is a bracing call to the life of discipleship, right? Go and do likewise. But it's placed in the middle of three stories about the life of discipleship. Earlier in this chapter, Luke tells us about the sending of the 72. And then he tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, helping us to see what Christ is doing to rescue humanity from its robbers, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how we are to be involved as innkeepers, using his resources rather than our own. And then Luke turns to the story of Mary and Martha. And then in that story, Martha is busy and distracted. Or actually, a better translation would be weighed down with the arduous work of ministry, preparing to receive the Lord into her home. I mean, what Martha is doing is not wrong. Actually, Martha is being an innkeeper, right? She's inviting the Lord into her home. She's busily offering hospitality to Christ. But Mary is not helping Martha. Instead, she sits at the feet of Christ, hanging on his every word. She sees that Christ is the word of God, and therefore every word that comes from his mouth is nourishment for her soul. And Jesus rebukes Martha, but praises Mary as the one who embodies the posture of the disciple. Martha interprets Mary's rapt attention to Jesus in the same way we would interpret it, I think. as a kind of inaction in the face of the world's needs. Mary is, we might say, merely offering thoughts and prayers, while Martha is doing the heavy lift. 
But Jesus is saying that Martha, and we by extension, fail to see that listening to Jesus is precisely a work of the kingdom which we must do if we are to play the part that we are meant to play in the healing of the world. The early church understood in a way that we do not, that prayer and meditation upon the scriptures is not inaction, but is actually the most foundational form of participation in Christ's action in a world of great need. Hear me, fam. Meditation upon the person of Jesus as he is revealed to us in Holy Scripture is the one thing you cannot do without. It is the one indispensable thing. In this world which needs and demands prophetic speech holding authorities accountable. In this world which needs wise policies, we dare not pit prayer and action against one another. Jesus does not. Luke does not. The way that he tells this story shows us that for Jesus, the most central, the most foundational things is to receive before you give and to always return to receiving. That is the posture of the disciples. I cannot be the innkeeper participating in the mercy of Jesus extended to a broken world if I am not intentionally receiving resources from him to do this work. My study, my meditation, my prayer, and all of our prayer are indeed the most important work that we must do if we want to be disciples who participate in this healing work. So that's where I want to leave us this morning. We are not the Samaritans. We are the innkeeper. We may only participate in the work of the healing of the world if the resources with which we heal are not our own, but those that we receive from the true Samaritan, who is Christ. That is what Luke wants us to see. So let us ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives, not so that we may indulge ourselves, but precisely so that we may be transformed into innkeepers, cooperating with Christ in the coming of his kingdom in this world. Lord, we would see you and we would hear from you, the good Samaritan, the guardian, so that we might go and do likewise as your disciples and as your friends. Amen. Amen.